0: is positively farming media there are a lot of sayings and advice and instructions in gardening that get repeated over and over again and a lot of the time we just kind of nod our head and say oh yeah okay well that makes sense you know things like the garden needs one inch of water per week or this plant likes full sun and we sort of instantly know what that means mulch is magical and compost is king Okay, well, maybe I'm the only one who says those last two, but think about the description on just about every seed packet or plant tag. It usually says something along the lines of, this plant likes fertile, well-draining soil with lots of organic matter. Okay, well, the fertility part we likely understand, and we talk about soil organic matter all the time around here. But what about well-draining soil? What does that mean? How do we know if we have it? And what do we do if we don't? If our soil isn't well-draining, are we destined to only garden in planters where we can completely control the soil? Can we create well-draining soil in our containers? Or can we modify our existing soil to make it well-draining? We know the soil that we're gardening in is one of the biggest building blocks for a healthy plant, and therefore a healthy harvest. What are the possible consequences for not having well-draining soil? How does it affect the plants. We're getting into all of that today, including, step by step, how to test any soil in any location to see exactly how well it drains. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen, and I started gardening 18 years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard. When we moved to a five-acre homestead, I expanded that garden to half an acre, and I found such joy and purpose in feeding my family and friends. This newfound love for digging in the dirt and providing for others prompted my husband and I to grow our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm. When I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, I discovered there is so much power in food, and I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. On this podcast, we explore crop information, soil health, pests and diseases, plant nutrition, our own nutrition, and so much more in the world of food and gardening. So grab your garden journal and a cup of coffee and get ready to just grow something. The first day of summer in the Northern Hemisphere is tomorrow. June 21st, and this is your annual reminder to take care of yourself in the heat while gardening this season. I mean, okay, take care of yourself in the heat no matter what activity you're doing, but we can sometimes overdo it on the weekends, playing catch-up in the garden, and just not realize it until it's too late that, well, we've caused ourselves a problem. Even those of us who do this all the time and work in the heat all the time can sometimes get ourselves into a little bit of trouble, and that's what happened to me today. I was was out there trellising and pruning tomatoes, and I was out there for about two and a half hours before I realized that I was kind of nauseous, and I started to get lightheaded, and I developed a headache. So, instantly came inside, got myself some hydration and some electrolytes, wrapped a cold, wet towel around my head and around my neck, and basically had to take it easy for the next couple of hours. When we're talking about working in the heat, we need to remember that hydration starts the day before, but we talk a lot about hydration and we don't often talk enough about nutrition. We can't forget that part. There is a phenomenon a lot of the time where we have a lack of hunger feelings in the heat. And you know, I'm going to get into the why behind that, right? We feel less hungry in the heat because we digest our food more slowly when it's very hot. Our body is focusing on other key activities at the moment, and it's going to reduce the energy that it put towards digestion because it's kind of viewing that as less important at the time. I know a lot about this because this happens in long-distance runners as well, which I happen to be one of. Plus, part of the reason that we eat is to supply our body with energy, and part of that energy goes into regulating our body heat. So in hot temperatures, this is less necessary, so our body perceives that we don't need as much fuel. The digestive process itself also generates considerable heat, which the body will suppress in an attempt to reduce its workload when we're getting overheated. Now, there are also additional theories that say that when there is less light, like in the wintertime, our body naturally begins to crave food to store it. And this is because your body thinks it's not going to get any more anytime soon. So naturally, with an increase in daylight hours, like in the summer, the hunger cues aren't going to be as strong because our bodies don't think we need to store as much. The problem with all of this is if you're working in an already hot environment, your body needs to actually work even harder to keep cool, which requires calories. So if we don't eat enough, we can actually hinder that process. It's a total catch-22. And that is part of what the problem was this morning. I went out the door without having eaten enough, and it turned around to bite me in the tuchus. I usually turn to smoothies and protein shakes to kind of make it easier to take in calories. And I eat more frequent small meals and snacks, and I always keep electrolytes in my water. It just didn't work as well today as it should have. So other things to think about while you're working in the heat are to wear loose-fitting clothes, take frequent breaks, try gardening in the early morning and the late evening if possible, and just avoid that hottest part of the day. And then, of course, my least favorite piece of advice is to avoid drinking caffeine. Now, I am still going to have my morning coffee, but if you're an afternoon soda person, you may want to skip it if you're working in the garden in the heat and maybe opt for some water with electrolytes instead. Speaking of coffee, I would like to welcome Christy B. as our newest patron over on Patreon. Christy has joined at the Buy Karen a Coffee level. And let's face it, at this time of the year, this podcast is running on coffee and cuss words. If you would like to join Christy in supporting this podcast monetarily at just $2 per month U.S., head over to patreon.com justgrowsomething or use the link in the show notes. Thanks for the coffee, Christy. I sure do appreciate it. All right, what is well draining soil? What is the actual definition? Which soils are naturally better draining and which ones might need a little help? The volume of our soil that is not occupied by soil particles is called the soil pore space. This pore space is critical to allowing air and water and microbes to move in and around the plant roots. Well draining soil is soil that allows water to drain through those pores easily and without pooling on the soil surface, but not so quickly that the plants and the microbes don't have adequate access to it. A well-drained soil has enough space between its particles to allow the water and the oxygen to flow freely, but that doesn't drain too quickly or too slowly and cause problems for the plants. The soil structure and size and the type of the soil particles plus its positioning in the garden are what can affect the drainage rate. Now, If your garden is in a low spot in your yard, it may have nowhere for excess water to go. Some areas of your garden may just stay saturated from runoff from your roof or other impervious surfaces like the road or your driveway. You might have a naturally high water table that keeps that spot saturated long after everything else has dried up. These are instances where diverting water flow is all that's really needed to help the water drain more freely. But if the soil is compressed or compacted, that means there's not enough pore space. Soil can be compressed by use of heavy machinery or just too much traffic over the soil. This means not only will there be very little space for water to move through, it means the air and the microbes can't get through either. Which also means your fine plant roots can't grow through. And if the garden has been tilled over and over again, and a hard pan has developed at about the 12 to 24 inch level where the tiller consistently hits year after year, then there won't be any place for the water to drain once it hits that point, and it can sit there for an extended period of time. This is a different type of impact on the soil structure and a variation on soil compression. But it's not just compressed or compacted soil that can lack pore space. The structure of the soil, meaning what percentage of each soil component, that clay, silt, or sand your soil contains, is also a factor. Soils that are predominantly clay or silt can hold onto the water for way too long because of their finer texture and smaller particles, and this can cause the plant roots to literally drown. This is why plants that are native to regions with very heavy soils often have very deep tap roots to break through that soil and create their own pore space. The other side of this is sandy soil that drains too quickly. If there's too much pore space, not only will the water not hang around long enough to be delivered to the plant roots, it also means the microbes don't have enough moisture to be able to move throughout the soil and help deliver the nutrients to our plants. This is why plants that are native to very sandy regions are those that either have very vast and robust root systems to be able to seek out that water, or those that can easily survive a drought. But in most cases, we're not just planting vegetables that are native to our area. Many of the most common vegetables we grow came from, like, Mediterranean areas that have beautifully fertile, loamy soil. And there are very few of us that garden in areas that have those naturally beautiful soils for gardening. So, knowing our native soil structure can be a start in understanding how well draining our soil is. If you know you have heavy clay soils, you know that soil is likely to remain saturated for longer than if you have a very sandy soil. Now, this can be a good thing if you know how to manage it. It's how we manage to go so long between rainstorms here without completely losing our crops heavy layers of mulch help to slow the rain flow into the soil so it doesn't become oversaturated as quickly. And then that same mulch helps the soil at the surface retain the moisture while the naturally dense clay hangs onto it beneath the soil surface. But it also means there are a lot of crops that just don't do well in that heavy soil, which is why we constantly amend with organic matter. Now, the same thing applies if you have sandy soil. You're not likely to face a problem where too much rain causes your garden to become waterlogged. But you will likely find that frequent waterings are necessary because the little bit of water that is retained in that soil is very quickly used up by the plants and the microorganisms. Amending with organic matter is the solution here, too. Compost, shredded leaves, aged manure, leaf mold, these are all perfect for improving the soil structure and increasing the water retention. And, of course, adding mulch will slow down the absorption of the water as it's hitting the soil surface, further improving the retention. Now if your soil is compacted, or if you've got a bit of hard pan beneath the surface, you might want to look at creating raised beds. This doesn't necessarily mean you need to resort to actual planters. You can create a raised bed without having a wooden or metal structure to it. We've done this in one particularly rocky and heavy clay field by just layering compost and other organic material onto the surface of the soil. We're not tilling it in or turning it under in any way. We simply start with several inches of compost at the end of the season, let it winter over, then add additional organic matter in the spring before planting directly into it. The compost that is in contact with the soil over the winter gets inoculated with the active microbes in the soil. The soil microbes move some of the organic matter into that top layer of the soil improving it, and the plants are mainly grown in the top 4 to 6 inches anyway, so the organic matter is holding the water where the pl- the main plant roots are. As each season goes on, we add more organic matter each season and we have ourselves a nice raised bed of soil that's about 6 inches above the native soil surface at any given time, and it isn't negatively impacted by the hard soil beneath. Now, of course, you can do this with raised planters. I will link to the episode where I talked about how to fill a raised planter or container. But essentially, if you layer your materials in there and have the proper components, you'll naturally be creating a well-draining soil. But after a while, even if you've amended your beds or created your own soil, things can change. Weather events, the types of plants being grown, our actions as gardeners within the beds can all change how our soil drains. And sometimes as new gardeners or when we're gardening in a new area, we don't really have any idea of what type of soil we're working with. I'll link to the episode about soil structure and how to test your soil so you understand what the components of your soil are and what that can mean for your garden. But aside from that, there is a super easy test that you can conduct, whether it's in your native soil, an amended bed, or in a container, that will tell you exactly how fast or slow your soil is draining so you can have a plan to make adjustments where necessary. We'll go through that step by step right after this. As we head into the summer heat, our garden plants may need a little help to get through. Now's the time I start using my bloom juice from Elm Dirt as a foliar spray in my garden for all my flowering and fruiting plants. Elm Dirt has a new code for Friends of the Podcast with a buy one, get one free offer. Just go to slash dirt and use code WOLF CREEK, all caps, all one word, at checkout and get your second item of equal or lesser value for free justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash dirt with code Wolf Creek. The link is in the show notes. So how do we test our soil drainage so we have an idea of what we're working with? It's a very simple test. It doesn't take very long at all, and it's very accurate. You're going to need a shovel, a ruler, and a bucket of water or access to your garden hose or some other running water. First, dig a hole in your gardening space that's roughly 12 inches square and 12 inches deep. If you're on metric, that's about 30 centimeters. And yes, you can do this with your raised container soil too. This is especially helpful if you've had your containers for a long time and haven't amended a whole lot over that time, or if you find the success of your gardening in those containers has changed for the worse recently. Once you've got your hole dug, fill the hole with water and then let it drain. Once that initial water has drained out, fill the hole again, and this time stick a ruler in there to measure how deep the water is initially, this should be pretty close to that 12 inches or that 30 centimeters that you dug out initially, right? After 15 minutes, use your ruler to check the depth again to see how much the water level has dropped. Multiply that difference by four, and this will tell you how fast your garden area will drain in one hour. if your soil is draining water at a rate of one to six inches per hour, or 12 and to 15 centimeters, that means your soil is well drained. Perfect. If, however, the water is draining less than one inch, or 12 and centimeters per hour, then it's draining too slowly. And if it drains faster than six inches or 15 centimeters in an hour, it's draining too quickly. Now, I have a few raised planters, some of my planter box direct planters that are out front that I filled at the end of the year last year. And then there's a matching set that I didn't fill until this spring. I can tell you the soil seems to be settling differently in each of those sets of containers. The mixture of components I put in the one seems to be sitting just more tightly than in the other. But before I go and do anything to that soil, I'm gonna do this test to see if it's even affecting the drainage or the soil pores at all. It might seem tight, but I've gotten great yields of carrots out of there in the past week or so, so there may not really be anything I need to do. My perception of what is going on may not mean anything to the plants. So I'll do this test and I'll likely do a soil test too to check the pH and the fertility in each of those sets of beds just to see what the differences are there. And I won't make any decisions until I've done those tests. The drainage test will also help me identify which beds might need to be watered longer than others when we do have water and which ones can get by with a shorter time with the hose. Now, hopefully this has answered the question of what well-draining soil is, how we can figure out if we have it, and how to correct it if we don't. If you're on my email list, you'll have these step-by-step instructions in your inbox this coming Friday in the weekly newsletter. If you're not on the email list, head to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com to sign up, and you'll get these details at the end of the week. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and we'll talk again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com where you can find all the episodes, show notes, articles, courses, newsletter sign up, and more. I'd also love for you to head to Facebook and join our gardening community in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning and keep growing.